0: morning, everybody. I am Brian Legg, part of our lead pastor team. Glad you were here this morning. I don't know about you, but it is hard to believe for me that it is Thanksgiving this week. seems like the year has just kind of flown by. Of course, I I had this realization this past week that I didn't like very much where it kind of dawned on me. I don't know that the years are actually moving faster, but I think my memory is just getting worse about the years and how they go. I I hate to admit that, but I, I think it's happening. Anyway, I hope that this week you will enjoy some time with family and friends, that you'll enjoy some time together with, as you celebrate Thanksgiving, but specifically that you'll take some time to reflect on all the things that you have to be thankful for, to take some time to just reflect on God's blessings in your life. Because even when life is tough, even when we're going through tough things, God still is blessing us and we have so much to be thankful for. So we are continuing in our F260 series this morning. As she just mentioned, you're going into week 15, which means we just finished week 14 in our reading. Um, If you're new to TBA or you're not familiar yet with that, it's simply a reading plan that's taking us through Scripture in a year. Um, And it's a very simple format. F260 is... Five days a week, basically two chapters a day. So if you do the math, you're going to figure out really quick that you're not reading every story in Scripture. You're not reading every word and every chapter and every verse. In fact, some of the books we get into, you're skipping a bunch of them. But it's designed to give you the big picture story and to take you on a journey of discipleship. So I would encourage you to plug into that. There's reading plans available out in the lobby or at Next Steps. Or you can talk to Tim or Joni there at Next Steps. And they can tell you about some apps you can pick up as well to be able to plug into that. So in this week's reading, we walked through Judges and we explored the stories of Gideon and then the story of Samson, and then we wrapped up the week in the book of Ruth. And those are three huge stories from the Old Testament. We could do a whole series of messages for many of them, but I knew you didn't want to stay here all the way through Thanksgiving this morning. So I only picked one story. And we're going to stick in the story of Ruth this morning. It's just something I felt like God laid on my heart to jump into. You know, Ruth is a story that's set apart, it's its own book of the Bible. But what's interesting is it actually happened right in the middle of the book of Judges. So when you put it in the time frame, there's a little debate over exactly which judge was in power when the story of Ruth happened, but it happened right in that same time frame as what we're reading about Samson and Gideon. And it's a very simple story, only four chapters to the book of Ruth. But there's so much more than what meets the eye when you first look at it. Because if you just take it at face value, it's a good story, it's got a lot of good elements. But the story is also full of prophecy and symbolism for our faith. And the whole book points us towards Christ and how he wants to redeem us and our hope in him. And I'm going to get to that in just a few minutes. But before we do, I want to introduce you to another resource that might help you along the way as you're doing this F260 plan. It's something my D group has been using, and I know some others have been as well. It's called the Bible Project. Maybe you've heard of it, but you can look it up. It's thebibleproject.com. You can go to their website, and it has everything laid out where you can find videos that give you some resources about the things we're reading. Or you can go to YouTube and just search the Bible Project. Um, This is a couple guys that I've done a lot of in-depth study. In fact, one of them has a doctorate in like the Semitic languages and, and especially in Hebrew and has done all kinds of research on the Old Testament and different things. So they're a lot smarter than I am, but they also have this artistic ability. And they take the stories of Scripture and they put them into a picture and they walk you through telling you the story. And their whole purpose is to be able to connect the dots from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation about how it's one big story. And here's how each book fits into it. So it just gives you really good context as you're reading through things, especially as you get into things like, you know, a few, or, or a few weeks ago, we were reading like Leviticus and Numbers and some of those books that sometimes are just a little bit harder to get through if you don't understand what's going on in them. And so they do a really good job of helping you understand what's the point of this? How does this fit into the story? Why was it important to them? Gives you good context. So I would encourage you to do that. And as we start this morning, we're actually going to watch their video on the book of Ruth that will give you a little context as we jump into the story together. So watch this.
1: The book of Ruth. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book. Naomi, the widow, Ruth, the Moabite, and Boaz, the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, In the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there, the father of the family dies. And the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food and it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest and so Ruth goes out to look for food and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character and he notices Ruth And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow. And she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. In this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz. And each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place place. This story is beautifully designed, and that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that's how little God is mentioned, right? The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life, but not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy, showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. Isn't that a cool resource?
0: Really connects the dots. They've got videos like this for pretty much every book of the Bible already that's out there, and then also like some word studies and other things. So it's just a great resource to go to to be able to use and kind of give you some context as you go along. And what I love is it's like a children's video, so it's right down on my level. I can understand it. But at the same time, they're giving you good adult information, and and you're walking you through. So it just kind of helps you to have a maturity in that as well. But I watched that video in particular, and I think, man, what a cool story. It's just like one of our movies today. It's got tragedy, it has desperation, it has love, it has redemption. It's got all those elements that you need for a good story. But there's some other really interesting details involved in this story that the video didn't even tell us about, didn't dig into. Like, for instance, the story tells us that Ruth is a Moabite. Okay, well, we know that. They moved to Moab, and, and so they married a couple Moabite women. We, we understand that, but do you get the significance of that? See, if you're like me, you've probably forgotten, but we've read about the Moabites a couple of other times as we've been working through our readings. The Moabites are descendants of, go figure, Moab. But do you remember who Moab is in the story? If you look back at our readings from Genesis, in fact, in the second half of Genesis 19, there's a particular story that, quite honestly, if you remember, was a little bit strange and kind of sickening as you read through it. But Moab is the incestual offspring of Lot, and one of his daughters. And so I'll let you go back and remember that story and read it on your own because it's got all kinds of crazy details that go into it. But here's what I want you to see. There's two sons that are born to Lot's daughters, Moab and ben Moab became the father of the nation of Moabites, ben the father of the nation of the Ammonites, and you've heard about them quite a bit too. But both of those nations were trouble for Israel from the very beginning. In fact, God gave very specific instructions to the Israelites to stay away from both of those nations, not to intermarry with them, not to intermingle with them, not to live among them, not to do anything with them. And there were very specific reasons why because both nations worshiped other gods, and both nations had adopted these pagan practices that he was trying to keep his people away from so they wouldn't be distracted. And I think that's why Naomi makes this statement in Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. It's her speaking to Ruth about Orpah. It says, look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. Basically, she's gone back to her old ways where she's comfortable. The Moabites had several gods that they worshipped, and they didn't know the God of Israel. They didn't know the one true God. But I want you to look at how Ruth responds to that statement in the very next verse because this is a pivotal verse in the story. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Now, you may not understand how big of a deal that is, but that last statement there is a game changer in this story. Your God will be my God. Ruth, a Moabite, otherwise known as a Gentile of the Jews. She's an outcast. She's lived among people all of her life, been raised among people who have all of these gods, all of these pagan practices, all of these things they're doing, not the least of which included child sacrifice. There were all kinds of weird things going on in the society. And she says, I'm going to leave all of that. I'm going to go with you, make your people my people, and your God will become my God. In reality, what's happening here is she's repented. She is literally turned away from her former way of life and her gods in order to follow the true God of the Israelites. And that's really, really important because you and I have a lot more in common with with Ruth than we may realize. So don't forget that. Hold on to that little piece. Now here's another really interesting detail to me that I want to point out. The book ends with this genealogy that we saw in the video showing how King David would come within the line of Boaz and Ruth. And so you see they have this son, Obed, he's the grandfather of King David. And that's amazing in and of itself that God just allowed a Gentile to be part of the line of Christ. And it's significance to the story and to us, but that's only a piece of it. Do you happen to recall who the parents of Boaz are? See, when you read through the genealogy of Ruth, it follows tradition and it only lists the fathers of each child. So it goes through and we see that Solomon was Boaz's father. But do you remember who his mother was? Because that's pretty significant too. And in order to get that information, we've actually got to spring way ahead in the story to find that. You've got to go over to the New Testament, to the very beginning of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1. And if you remember, Matthew chapter 1 starts with this huge, long genealogy. And usually we open it up and you go, why do I want to read name after name after name? He begat him, he begat him. It goes on and on and on. And it follows the same tradition, stating only the male, showing only the father, all the way through the genealogy, with a couple of exceptions. You get to the first half of verse 5, and you read this. Salmon was the father of Boaz, and then look what it puts in parentheses, whose mother was Rahab. It never talks about the women in genealogies, but there's a couple places here in Matthew that it signifies who the mother was. Why is that? Do you remember who Rahab is? We just read about her a couple weeks ago. In our stories where Joshua is sending the spies into Jericho to check out what's going on, Rahab is the prostitute who lives in the city wall who hides the spies so that they don't get caught when the king's out looking for them. And she lowers them down from her window so that they can safely escape. She protects them, and because of her faithfulness to God and to the Israelites, she's spared when they come in and take over Jericho. Rahab and Ruth, both Gentiles, both far from God, both make a decision to be true to God, to commit to Him. They basically repent of their ways. Repentance is simply turning 180 degrees, going the other direction. They choose a different direction. They follow the God of Israel and they become part of the lineage of Christ. That's huge. This story of redemption is powerful and it's what gives hope for you and me. So let's put all that in perspective as best we can here. You have Naomi who, Scripture doesn't say this specifically, but I would argue all day long that her and her husband, in reality, were disobedient when they left Bethlehem and they went to Moab. See, the Israelites had very specific directions from God to stay away from the Moabites. Don't intermingle with them, don't intermarry with them, because you would be tempted to follow their gods and their practices. Now, it's just my opinion, but I think that Elimelech and Naomi chose to trust their own judgment instead of choosing to trust God. There was a famine that came in the land. Things got tough. They weren't sure where they were going to find food. Nothing was green anymore. And so they literally went where the grass was greener. But isn't that how a lot of us do a lot of times? Even when God's given us specific directions to protect us and to keep us in line? So you have the family that moves to Moab when things get tough then their sons marry two Moabite women very specifically taught against against God's law for the Israelites. Then you have Naomi's husband and her two sons that die and she's left in this foreign land with two foreign daughters-in-law. You just saw that in the video. She's feeling hopeless. And as she goes back to Bethlehem, she even changes her name to Mara, meaning bitter, because she feels like God has abandoned her. But see, in reality, I think I could easily argue that it was Naomi who abandoned God, not the other way around. And she was experiencing the natural consequences that come when we choose to be disobedient and go our own way and do our own thing. But either way, with Naomi or Mara, depending on what you want to call her, she's brought her daughter-in-law back to Bethlehem with her, the Moabite, this lady who is determined in her heart to follow God and to learn the ways of the Israelites. And then watch what happens. I love how the video depicts it this way. It says, Ruth just so happens to go to Boaz's field to glean barley. And Boaz just so happens to come to the field that day and see Ruth and ask questions about her. And Boaz just so happens to be the close relative to Naomi. In fact, we come to find out that he is their kinsman redeemer or their family redeemer. Now, maybe you've already figured this out as you listen to it, but that's kind of some sarcasm going in there because I don't believe for a moment that any of those things just so happened. God was involved in every single intricate detail from the very beginning of the story to the very end of the story. And as we see happen over and over and over, he uses what most likely was an act of disobedience or at least a poor decision on the part of Elimelech and Naomi, and he's going to bring something amazing out of it. He will redeem the story. Does that sound familiar to our lives? Isn't that kind of what God does for us? He redeems our stories even when we make a mess of it. See, the video did a pretty good job of giving you the big picture of this kinsman redeemer idea. And I'd love to spend a lot more time there because that's, that topic is so rich and so full of things that we could dig into. It could be a message by itself, but what I want you to see today is kind of the story behind the story. See, we read about Boaz being Ruth and Naomi's kinsman redeemer, but what I want you to grasp is what does that mean for you and I? See, this story is a picture of what Christ has done for us. Christ is our kinsman redeemer, and we are just like Ruth. Our sin nature has separated us from God and made us outcasts from God's people, from his family. And yet Christ wants to redeem us. But here's something that's really, really important in the story. Just like Boaz in the story, Christ is a perfect gentleman, and he will not force the issue. But instead, he waits for us to invite him to redeem us. You remember seeing that in the drawing? Ruth goes to Boaz, and she invites him to redeem her and Naomi, to redeem the family, to marry her. That's very, very important because we have a role to play. We have to want to be redeemed and we have to ask for that redemption. Christ will not force his will upon us. Just like Boaz, Christ is waiting and willing, ready to redeem as soon as we invite him to. And I want to pause there for just a minute. If you're here today and and you listen to that story and you realize, man, I don't know what it means to have a kinsman redeemer. I I don't get that. I want you to understand that. In fact, I would encourage you, make the decision now to go back to the next steps. Tim and Joni you're sitting over there in the corner. You can see them and wave at them. They sit back there every Sunday. They're always available to talk to you. After service, I'm gonna be back there as well. I would love to talk with you. But if you don't understand what it means to have a kinsman redeemer to cross that line of salvation, we would love to talk with you and pray with you and spend some time with you. You can make the decision. You can go talk to them now if you want. You won't distract me. Or you can wait in just a few minutes, the band's gonna come up and everybody will stand up, maybe a little more comfortable. But I would encourage you, make that decision now and hold on to that. If you have already experienced that redemption, then you know what it means to invite Christ to be your kinsman redeemer. And when you cross that line, here's what I would suggest. You change characters in the story. We go from being Ruth, who doesn't know the God of Israel, who doesn't know the one true God, and is chasing all of our own gods and doing our own thing, to being Naomi. See, Naomi was an Israelite by birth and she followed the one true God by tradition, but also because that was where her heart was. She was following after him. And we don't see anything that tells us that she walked away from God, even in the moments that she probably was being a little bit disobedient. So here's Naomi who knows God, understands who he is, is experiencing him, is walking in relationship with him, yet she still is very much in need of a redeemer, She's lost her land because they moved to Moab. She's lost everything that she had. They're struggling even to find food. And it's her family that has to be redeemed. Not just Ruth, but it's Naomi who's being redeemed as well. That kinsman redeemer, Boaz, is buying back their property, is buying back all of their stuff, is giving them status restored in society. We need a redeemer every day as well. But here's the big difference. Naomi has the opportunity to help bring someone else to that redeemer she brings ruth back from moab and introduces her to her kinsman redeemer gives her a chance in life that she would have never experienced any other way and you and i are called to do the exact same thing so i want to take a couple of minutes this morning to look at the specific role that naomi played in the story and how that compares to our lives and then i want to just leave you with a couple of questions to ponder today as i already told you naomi was already following god and you can make the argument that she might have been disobedient if she went to Moab. I, I think that's kind of what I would say. And, and, you know, honestly, scholars probably would argue with me on that point. That's okay. Just go with me for a minute. Give me a little grace because I think you're going to see how it applies. See, I think for us, we can relate to Naomi. We've chosen to follow God. We desire to be obedient. Yet, when things get really tough, when things don't go our way, when we think things should be a certain way and they don't turn out that way, what is our tendency Isn't it our tendency to look for what we think would be best for us instead of just trusting in God's plan? I mean, the reality is it's just our pride kicking in in those moments, thinking that we know better than God in our very limited perspective. But we find ourselves in a mess because of decisions we've made, and just like Naomi, there are moments where it feels like God must be against me. If given the choice, we might even change our name to Mara. Life is just bitter when things don't go the way we think they should go. But here's what I've learned from Naomi this past week. I've read back through this story time and time again. And even in the midst of feeling like God had turned his back on her, even in her bitterness and desperation, she still just so happened to be aware of how God was moving all around her. Do you notice that? By the way, just a complete side note, I'll just throw this in there, something you can research on your own, but... Every time you see one of those coincidence kinds of moments, do you realize that that's the Holy Spirit at work within the story? In fact, in this story in particular, there's a really interesting detail that we skip over a lot of times. There was an unnamed servant who talks to Boaz about Ruth and gives him all the details about him. Every time in the Old Testament you see that unnamed servant show up, it's a clear picture of the Holy Spirit at work in the story. You can just go back and Google it. You can find all kinds of information and read up on it. It'd be something I think you would find interesting. Interesting. But jumping back into the story, Naomi was struggling with her circumstances, and she was in a rough spot, but yet she still paid attention. And like the video said, the narrator doesn't talk about God being at work in the story at all, yet we see him at work in every intricate detail in all of the seemingly normal struggles and tragedy of life. Don't all of our lives reflect that to some extent? We have one struggle after another, we experience tragedy, we go through hard times, But yet we see how God has a plan that is so much bigger than Naomi's disobedience to go to Moab. It's so much bigger than the disobedience of her sons to marry Moabite women. It's so much bigger than simply redeeming Naomi's land and allowing her to possess it again. God's plan in this story is one that extends through generations and will reach many nations. And in reality, these three characters are just a small part of a much, much bigger story. But what if... What if Naomi hadn't accepted Ruth and allowed her to return to Bethlehem with her? What if Naomi hadn't recognized who Boaz was and what that meant for them? What if Naomi hadn't instructed Ruth about how to approach Boaz? She didn't know anything about Israelite customs. She didn't know how to do that. What if, in her bitterness, Naomi had just given up and went home to die of starvation alone? See, I'd suggest that a lot of us tend to look at life like that. Maybe not quite that extreme, but from an emotional perspective at least, so many times when things go bad for us, we're just kind of ready to wither up and die. God must hate me. I'll never be right again. Things will never get better. This is never going to be the same as it used to be. We wallow in our misery and we're no good to God or anybody else. But see, Naomi didn't do that. And here's what I love about her. You see the human side of her. You see the hurt and the desperation that's going on in her life as she walks through this tragedy. And you see how she responds to that, even changing her name. But at the same time, you see her respond and pay attention to how God was at work through the whole situation. She accepts Ruth's offer to go with her. She gets excited when she hears that Boaz is looking favorably upon Ruth. She instructs and prepares Ruth for redemption. And it doesn't tell us this specifically, but I really think that Naomi's trust was restored because she's paying attention to how God's at work. Even before you see the actual redemption happen and the, and the, the restoration happen, because after Boaz and Ruth marry and they have that child, it kind of paints that picture of Naomi's been restored in this moment. Everything goes back to what, what it should be. Her family is going to continue. Her family name is going to continue. Everything's right. But I think that was just the icing on the cake for Naomi. For Naomi, I think her trust was restored as she watched how God was working in all of the little details, moment after moment after moment throughout the story. So how does this apply for you and me? See, if we're following Christ, then we are the Naomi of the story. And whether we've made bad decisions and we're experiencing difficult times because of it, or whether trouble's just found us, even when we've tried to be faithful, or even if things are going great right now, We're still left with a choice every single day. Are we looking for how God is at work in the normal, everyday circumstances that we face, whether good or bad? Are we paying attention to how he might want to use us to bless somebody else? Are we looking for the opportunity to introduce another Moabite to her kinsman redeemer? And I use that term loosely there. Moabite just being someone who's far from God, who doesn't know who he is or have a relationship with him. Are we looking for those opportunities? Because you see, you and I were that Moabite widow. We were headed for death and destruction, but Jesus stepped in and redeemed us. And he wants to do the same for others just like us. And we have been called to be that bridge to the world. We've been commanded to bring others to their kinsmen redeemer so that they can experience the same hope and joy that you and I have experienced but are we doing that? Are we doing that? And see, you don't have to be a gifted evangelist. You don't have to be a wordsmith or a smooth talker. You don't have to be confrontational with somebody. You don't even have to have some kind of crazy charismatic personality that that draws people to you. It doesn't require any of those things. God made you the way you are on purpose. You just need to be you. But here's the key while being you, pay attention to how God wants to use you. Pay attention to the opportunities that he puts in front of you. Look for those opportunities. See how he's working in the normal, everyday circumstances. Let me try to make it practical for you for a minute just to give you an example from my own life. Middle school volleyball season just started a few weeks ago and I coached the Lakeland Highlands Middle School Volleyball Team. It's a girls volleyball team. This is the first year that I've coached that my daughters are not playing. And in fact. That's why I got started coaching. My oldest was playing and I watched her play the first year and no offense to the people who were coaching at that point, but I'm a very competitive person and I sat in the stands and I went, I know zilch about volleyball, but I guarantee I can motivate the girls to do more than they're doing right now. And so I literally went home and ordered a book on Amazon called Volleyball for Dummies, I read through that. I got on YouTube and started watching videos and picking things up. I found a couple coaches in the area that I knew were good and had a good reputation and started working with them and figuring things out. And the next year, I plugged in and started volunteering with the team. And it's just gone from there. This is either my fifth or sixth year coaching with them. But this being the first year my daughters haven't played, I was going to give it up because I really just did it for my girls. You know, they're playing on the team. And Sherry and I were talking a lot about it and praying about it, we just felt strongly that that was the live-sent opportunity God had put before us to be able to interact with these girls, and we couldn't give it up. And so I went back to coach again, and, and uh, my wife is our sponsor this year. As a teacher, we call her the boss. She's even got it on her shirt. Um, of course, that's just kind of like home, right? But... She is our sponsor this year because you have to have a teacher that's a sponsor, and we couldn't get a teacher at the middle school to do it, so she was able to plug in and do it for us, which is cool. I'm coaching, and then along with uh, Aaron and Ruth Thornton, who many of you know that go to Highland Park down the street, they're plugged into the team. Jamie Bennett, who's one of our small group leaders, has plugged in with us this year, and he's helping to do some conditioning with the girls. And so you've got all these adults that are role models in the church who are there to speak into the girls' lives My three daughters are coming back and volunteering and being a part of it. And then I've got, in addition to that, three or four high school girls that have played for me before that are coming back and helping too. And here's the cool thing about all of it. I don't coach volleyball just because it's fun. Because believe it or not, it is. I have a lot of fun doing it. I I never would have thought that that's what I would want to do, but I have found great joy in working with those middle school girls. I don't know why, and I don't know how. All I can say is it's God because as I raised middle school girls, I thought, why would I ever want to be around more middle school girls? But God has done some really, really cool things in it, and it's not just about volleyball. And, and again, don't get me wrong, because I'm competitive, I love it, I love to drive them, I love to help see them win and be successful, but more importantly, I like seeing them be successful in life. And I like the opportunity that I have to build a relationship and to speak into their lives and to be a part of what's going on much bigger than volleyball. How are you doing at school? How are your relationships going? What, are, what things are happening in your lives? Those former players that have come back that are playing high school ball now that come back, they all see me as a second dad because I've had that kind of relationship with them. I've been able to speak things into their lives, to talk to them about how do you dress. And how should you dress? And how do you interact with boys? And how, I mean, ask some of my players. We have some of those conversations in practice sometimes about what it means to be a good, modest middle school girl. How you should be living your life. And I, I try my best not to avoid those subjects. But I've learned that it's cool to be able to speak into that. And here's what I find this very interesting. Very few of my players attend church anywhere. And so when something happens in their life, when something goes wrong in a relationship, when something happens where somebody passes away or there's some tragedy that their family's experiencing, who do you think they call? They call me or they call one of the other coaches that have spoken into their life and we get an opportunity to walk with them in the midst of that and to share hope and to share life. I've had opportunities to walk with several of the families of girls that have played for me just because I chose to coach volleyball. And I've seen it, how God has opened the door for that to be a live-sent opportunity. What started as a normal everyday circumstance where I went, my daughter's playing volleyball, she needs a coach that's gonna push them to do a little better than they're doing. I plugged into it and then God opened the door for it to be an opportunity to live-sent, to be his hands and feet. So I would ask you, what are you doing already where God may be working? What are those normal everyday details that you're involved in that God wants to do something special with. It doesn't have to be something new. Your job, your neighbors in your neighborhood, your coworkers, other students that you're around, your kids' sports team that you're involved with, that place that you volunteer during the week, what is it that you're already doing that God wants to do something special through you? Where are you being called to be that bridge to the Moabites around you? Who's your Ruth? Who is that person that you should be praying and pursuing and speaking into their lives? And will you be his or her Naomi? Will you introduce them to their kinsman redeemer? I'm going to pray and then I'm just going to ask you to respond however God leads. If a few moments ago when I was talking, you made the decision that you needed to go to Next Steps and have somebody pray with you so you could experience that, do that now. Here's your time. If you're sitting here this morning and you go, hmm, I don't know really that I have a Ruth and I I don't know that I'm being Naomi to anybody, I would encourage you to take some time to pray about that. Come here and kneel in front of the stage, kneel there at your seat, come back to Next Steps, let us talk with you, pray with you. We'd love to do that. Let God speak to your heart in this moment, and then you respond in obedience as he speaks. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? God, I thank you for how you use such small and simple stories like the story of Ruth to give such big truths to us in our lives. God, I thank you for how you speak to our hearts through things like this to help us realize how you're at work and how you're moving and, and God, your desire to love us and to redeem us and to to be that redeemer for us. God, I'm so thankful for the picture that's painted in the story that we've explored today of how desperately you love us and want to be there for us. So many times, God, when things aren't going our way or when things don't look the way we want them to look, it's easy for us to get distracted or even walk away or do something disobedient because We're trying to fix it in our own strength. But help us to step back and recognize how you're at work behind the scenes even when we don't see it. Even when we don't see how the details are coming together, help us to trust that you are working to redeem the things that are going on in our lives, the tragedies that we're experiencing, the tough times that we may be walking through. God, help us to recognize that even when things are going good for us, how you may be wanting to use us to help someone else see how you're at work in their circumstances and how you're inviting them to come and experience that redemption power that you are offering. God, in this moment, may our hearts be filled with your love and your grace. May we experience that differently and I pray that you would begin even now to lay names and situations on our heart where you're asking us and calling us to be Naomi, where you're calling us to go to whoever it is that may be your Ruth, and to share your love, and to share your grace, and to walk and do life with them. Help us to step back and reflect about those normal, everyday circumstances where you're at work, and you're moving, and you're calling us to be a part. And help us to learn to live sent in those moments. Speak to our hearts now, and help us to respond in obedience. In your name we pray.